0: This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello and welcome to another episode of Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we talk about human trafficking and related topics and people who are vulnerable to human trafficking. My name is Seth Dare and I'm here with my co-host JJ Gentlone. We are both graduates of the master's program <laughs> at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. I just finished my degree in International Human Rights, uh, JJ International Studies. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Congratulations.
0: And, oh, thank you. Master's degrees do take a bit of work, people, if you're thinking about one. Expect to see people less to get a lot of sources do lots of reading spend lots of hours trying to get a citation style in the right format
1: but if you really love it you can then decide to stay on and get a phd
0: as jj is doing right now yep and jj you also spend time volunteering with swan is that right
1: Yes, I am the Media and Marketing Director for SWAN, Colorado. Uh, SWAN is an acronym. This is going to be an episode with a lot of those acronyms, that is. Um, And SWAN stands for the Social Wellness Advocacy Network. So SWAN of Colorado. And what that organization does, what I do with them, is we provide... Uh, A combination of therapy and services for people who are both victims of sex trafficking and then people who are sex workers by choice who are then attempting to move from sex work into other work avenues or looking to have their status as sex workers be respected. So we work both with people who are sex trafficking victims and then people who are in prostitution or other forms of sex work by choice.
0: All right, JJ. Why don't you introduce today's topic?
1: So, what we're going to be talking about specifically is LGBTQ people and trafficking—people who fall under or I, the umbrella of or identify as LGBTQ—and why it is that so many of so many people who are within this population are trafficked, specifically sex trafficked, and why it is that we have hardly any statistics related to them being labor trafficked despite the fact that we know labor trafficking makes up the majority of trafficking in the United States. So what is it about being someone who identifies as the LGBTQ type? Why is it that they end up more and more in these sex trafficking situations?
0: We're going to start, though, by just talking more about LGBTQ definitions Like, What does it all mean? Because we recognize that our listeners are on a spectrum. We have people on the right and the left. We have people that are Christian and non-Christian. JJ and I with faith backgrounds who work around various types of people, both at Corbell and JJ with Swan and other groups. So we want to try to be accessible and to walk some of a middle ground. That likely means we're bound to offend somebody. So it was only a few years ago my first year at Corbell, that I learned that sex and gender are not the same thing as far as sociology is concerned. Sex is biological, and gender is culture-oriented, sociological. It is something that is socially constructed. Now by that, it's not saying that there's no relation It's basically saying that there is an aspect to how we represent gender, like how the different sexes dress, how they end up in social roles, that there's an aspect to that that is highly built on culture and history and so on.
1: Yeah, the way way that I've always been, been taught it and have taught other people it is that, while your sex is male or female, is a biological fact that is that can be read and determined by any culture what that sex then means in terms of your gender so the role you have as a man or a woman in that society can be quite different across different cultures so what reads as male gender what reads as female gender may differ But the biological differences, so your chromosomes, your hormones, your internal and external sex organs, those rarely change. So when you have people who are trans, they're trying to modify their sex to better reflect their gender. And the idea is that eventually you're able to transform completely so that people just read your gender as what you feel internally it is.
0: Now, there's some people who have a condition called gender dysphoria. Is that the correct Mm name?
1: Well... It it depends actually on what you're talking about. So gender dysphoria is when you feel that your emotional and psychological identity as male or female is opposite than what your biological sex is. It used to be called gender identity disorder, which I actually think explains that a little bit better. So that's if I am born with the sex of male And I have the external genitalia, I have a penis, I have everything. But I feel really strongly that the gender that physically everyone reads my sex and says, okay, well, they're male and they treat me as male is wrong. So that gender dysphoria is then generally plays out in two ways. One, people then identify with this label now of transgender so that means what my the gender that my sex reads me as is not the gender that I feel internally, I am. So I'm trying to reconcile these two things. So gender dysphoria is actually the medical term for transgender. I think people tend to use transgender as a term more now because gender dysphoria one is a lot harder to say. <laughs> and two is has a lot of ties to the sort of history of people who do identify as trans being medical curiosities or in some way medically flawed. And I think a lot of people who are trans, understandably, don't like identifying with this very dark history. Now, within, though, gender dysphoria, there's another sort of, shall we say, side family to it, which is being gender non-conforming. That would be GNC if you're looking for acronyms. But gender non-conforming can include people with gender dysphoria, so you can be gender non-conforming and trans. But it also can describe people who feel that they're neither male or female. So this might be someone who is what otherwise be classified as trans, so they have male genitalia, but they identify as female in their gender but they don't want to undergo surgery, they don't want to do hormone treatments, or they're unable access to those, or people who feel that they're not just male and not just female, they're both. Now you can sometimes, so terms are really hard and sometimes people will also refer to this as intersex, that they feel like they're both, uh, but gender non-conforming is sort of generally the flat one. This can also be used for people who don't feel for a number of reasons, that this idea of sort of performing their gender, so performing a particular male identity or performing a particular male identity every day of their life, doesn't quite fit with them. So they generally, they might be someone who just views themselves as more of an androgynous person, or it might be someone that depending on the day feels a little bit more female, and a little bit more male. And I know if you're, unfamiliar with these terms and you're unfamiliar with the LGBT community you can sort of I can understand why this seems really difficult and sort of I'm gonna get in trouble for this but sort of crazy uh because this used to be something that was classified under the the DSM as a mental disorder however it no longer is but to feel that what you are biologically is not actually what you are in terms of your identity is a very, very complicated thing that's going to differ from individual to individual. There are no two guys out there in the world that are alike. There are no two women that are out there on the world that are alike. So it's kind of silly to assume that just because someone is trans, they're going to have one type of masculinity or one type of femininity or one type of journey. That's not the case. And I can also see why if you're unfamiliar with these terms, this idea that well, who who wants to be both, or who doesn't know what they are, or who doesn't know where they fit, well, the reality is there are a lot of people that fall into this realm. And there's a difference between being someone who is gender non-conforming and someone being trans, and someone being what is often labeled cisgender. So that's being, having a gender and an identity um, that is heteronormative, that is to say being a straight female or a straight male, heterosexual male, heterosexual female, and so I get that this is really, really complicated, and it can seem like a little bit of a minefield, but just because it's hard doesn't mean that we shouldn't know about it.
0: Right, and we should also cover gender orientation since we are doing lesbian, gay, bisexual,
1: Yeah. So gender orientation is entirely different from gender performance because gender orientation is actually sexual orientation. So that's your enduring pattern. So the one that you have the most of romantic or sexual attraction or both to persons of either the opposite sex or gender, the same sex or gender, or to both sexes or more than one gender. So when i'm talking about gender remember again this is the socially constructed roles behaviors so i identify personally as a my sexual orientation being a heterosexual meaning liking someone of the opposite sex female so i live my life as a woman i'm identified as a woman gender norms of what it is to be feminine in Western culture are perpetually thrown in my face. That's what I live with. I am romantically and sexually attracted pretty exclusively to men, people of the male gender. But what that gender could be, male gender could very well be someone who is trans. So someone who is Uh, male identifying, but their biological sex is female because it's that performance of masculinity, that appearance of masculinity that I am particularly attracted to. And so that's kind of how things pan out. If you are a, if you are kind of falling into the homosexual category, then you typically are attracted to people of the same sex or gender and or gender, shall we say. Uh, and then there are lots of people who are attracted to both, and that attractiveness is on a very big continuum. I think everybody—it's—it's kind of widely accepted that, you know, if if sexuality is a spectrum from one to ten, very few people are exactly a one or exactly a ten. People are much more likely to be kind of floating more towards the middle than not, if that makes sense. So. That's what all of this complicated language that was ultimately getting at is just the reality of these are live, this is what people have to deal with in their life. So how they interact, how everyone interacts, dealing with sometimes a gender and identity that is not adequately reflected by how they look, a gender identity that is not always treated fairly in the public. And then just trying to find a companion trying to find love out there in the world somebody to be with and share your life with and sort of all the complications of that it's just that because of the stigma associated with being a member of the lgbtq community and because of the stigma in particular associated with and we're talking primarily in a western context here but certainly being a member of the lgbtq community legally has not always been protected. Uh, So how, how you navigate that life.
0: And so this is where I will note that we have listeners who are religious, like Christian and or conservative, that there are people in that spectrum who do not approve of either trans or gay, lesbian, or who are uncomfortable with it, or who think that it's morally wrong. And I just want to respect that that's something that a lot of Christians especially believe, and that it doesn't necessarily equal hate. For some, it's just a matter of the interpretation of the Bible that they have, and that's what they're bringing to it. But we're not asking anyone to say you have to agree with, I don't, I don't even want to say choice, that you have to agree with this. It's that people people feel this way. They feel, for whatever reason, and we're not going to get into all of that part of it, but that this is an experience people have, that people do feel attraction to the same gender, and that there are people who feel that they should be the other sex, and then they decide how they want to live that out. And that people are going to do that, and people do do that. And so that's where we're largely starting, is that we, we have people who identify on that spectrum, lesbian, gay, bisexual. Transgender, queer, and we want to talk about their lives and their vulnerability to human trafficking.
1: I'm willing to also throw in, like, hi. Uh, my name is JJ. I am a PhD student. I am a devout Catholic, and I also uh, am a hundred percent down with and consider myself a very staunch ally of the LGBTQ community. So I think this is also a thing, though, that we're going to have a lot of listeners fr- from the religious community who have their sort of beliefs about what, what their chief action is as a servant of God, and in my case, it's it's loving other people. I think that's that's the biggest one. And that maybe rules follow slowly, but I certainly understand and know just from attending in my own parish, that there are a lot of people that believe differently from me. But as Seth, you've just said, it doesn't matter, actually, in terms of what we're talking about today, the amount of people who are trafficked if you necessarily agree with the identity that someone has. You may also disagree with, as we'll talk about in in episodes moving forward, with someone who is participating in sex work. You may also disagree with someone who is a drug dealer. You may also disagree with someone who is entering the country illegally. But just because you disagree with some of the identities that these people ascribe themselves to or the lives that these people are living, that doesn't make slavery of them that doesn't make the murder of them, that doesn't make the mistreatment of them in any way moral or ethical, just because it makes you uncomfortable or you don't necessarily agree with it, whether it's for dogmatic reasons or otherwise. And for me,
0: coming from a faith background, I find it unacceptable when we who try to be Christian and live out Christian lives dehumanize and look at other people as less than us and say that they've made choices or they are sinning and therefore they are immoral and we're going to put them lower on the totem pole and make them more outcast than they already are. That to love people doesn't mean that you accept everything, but it does mean that we try to te- we try to treat people with a measure of respect and dignity and kindness and maybe sometimes that means tough love as well in the big conversation but that we treat people as human beings and so that's ultimately how i see it and when we're talking about human trafficking it's all about dealing with the fact that we have marginalized populations and that, that marginalization can be taken advantage of by people who are unscrupulous. And so how can we recognize that people have these vulnerabilities or are in this situation and what can we do about it? And how can we recognize, like in this case, that some people who are trafficked are LGBTQ people, that it doesn't get talked about that much? which is why JJ wanted to do an episode on it.
1: And we are. This is, yeah, this is kind of a thing near and dear to my heart. Um, And I'll I'll be quite honest, because I was actually asked to go give a presentation on LGBTQ people and trafficking because I study human trafficking, so my master's degree is in, and because I I, I do a lot with the LGBTQ community here in Denver and i had to admit that i was probably not qualified to give this teaching because i didn't know enough about it i didn't know enough about the stats in the human trafficking world and as i continued to research for this presentation i discovered that we're lacking a lot of data on this and then that sort of got me thinking about the wider problems that exist in terms of identifying The vulnerabilities of an LGBTQ community. So maybe what would be helpful for those listening at home just kind of thinking broadly is maybe to kind of move through things as I found them (laughs) and kind of raising the problems or the complexities of things as we go. Okay. So to start off with, Let's break down our terms just one more time. So LGBTQ, as Seth said, is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and and then the Q is queer or questioning. Okay, so this term has been around since the 1990s, and this community broadly used to just be called the gay community, but obviously that isn't that term. The gay community isn't super inclusive of more diverse groups. A lot of people said that it didn't necessarily identify their experiences. So the acronym was expanded and eventually Q ended up on there. And initially it was questioning. it is still used as questioning by some groups, but it's more used now as queer, QUEER. And it's used as an umbrella term for the LGBT community. And I personally, and the group that I work with Swan well, personally prefers the term queer. Because saying queer, it's kind of a political statement. It's not just referring to sexual orientation. It talks about how sexual orientation and gender identity are kind of fluid and exist on a spectrum and have a lot to deal with how people view you and how you view yourself. you also see a couple of groups who will use LGBTQ and then the plus sign to just sort of incorporate, and if, we, if you don't feel like you're ...incorporated enough under this umbrella term, we've added a plus to say that you actually do belong, you do exist here. Uh, It encourages sort of allyship, so people who don't identify under any of these terms, but feel that they want to help the community, you know, you too have a space in the acronym, that sort of thing. For the sake of lessening the word salad, for the rest of this podcast, unless I'm quoting from something, I am just going to be calling uh, it the queer community if you find this term offensive i i completely get it because queer was and still very much is used as a derogatory term as a a slur against people who fall under the lgbtq umbrella um especially like people who are gender non-conforming or people who are going through transition i think and I'm actually going to cite Dan Savage here. That context means a lot in it, but I also understand that, you know, I'm not a member of this community. So I am going to be using queer for this. Um, additionally, I'm going to be using this, uh, the term queer, because I'm going to be referencing directly to queer theory, which is a post-structuralist theory used in academia. And that came in, in the late nineties to deal with the idea of what is sex and gender. And what does sex and gender mean across different academic fields. So in the field of international relations, what does queer theory mean? And so it's just easier, honestly, (laughs) for me to use the term queer, but I do apologize if that term is offensive sort of to your sensibilities and you feel uncomfortable with it. But I guess I'm discounting that because I'm gonna do it anyway. (laughs) Okay, so that's the LGBTQ community, the queer community. Why is it that queer individuals, when you search for the queer community and trafficking, why is it that you only get hits on sex trafficking? Why? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be unfair be like, Seth, any preconceptions about why it might be that?
0: Because both are about sex.
1: Ding, ding, ding. Points for Seth. <laughs> and everyone out there in the world. Yeah, um...
0: It is really annoying to read people when they have a problem with homosexuality, which, I mean, it's one thing to have the belief, it's another when you just equate it to anal sex.
1: Yeah, it's a very big obsession.
0: When There's more gay. to that. I have gay friends, or I should say, friends who happen to be gay, and uh, it it's about more than that.
1: Well, it also is heterosexuality, straightness, is about more than sex with people of the opposite gender. Your, your life is more than, than that, or at least I hope it is, you know, for all of you out there listening who fall into that category. You know, life is more than sexual attraction or romantic attraction and sex. It is. And so to reduce someone to, like, a singular part of their identity, the part of their, of their sex drive or the part of their gender... Discounts all the other super awesome things a human being can be. It would be like if you got reduced only to what your hobby is, you know? And then suddenly I am nothing but a lady who really likes board games and knitting. And you're a dude who bought a lightsaber. Like, we're more than that. We're more than our romantic partners. We're more than our sexual preferences. We're more than what we look like. And this I think is particularly true if you belong to any sort of faith tradition, right? We're more than our bodies. We have this thing that's a soul that's way more important than any of that. And so it is it's it's very frustrating and I find it incredibly insulting. So that's part one of it. Yeah. That the queer community is labeled as being sexual deviance. Or people who are overwhelmingly obsessed with sex or obsessed with genitalia. And because of that, people are far more comfortable with talking about the queer community as being a victim of sex trafficking. Because of course they're involved in sex work. Of course they're involved in risky sexual behaviors. And they're uncomfortable thinking about this very same community being involved in labor trafficking like domestic work uh forced labor and like a sweatshop uh, being a construction worker because to do so is actually to acknowledge someone who is a member of the queer community as being something more than queer and to be something quote unquote normal and i'm not going to say much more on that because one of the things that seth and i are trying really hard to do in this podcast is to touch on numbers whenever possible and there are no numbers on this, and there is very little literature on this, I can tell you anecdotally that I feel that this is a marginalized community that's being marginalized even more. I think that this is a community that's already been overwhelmingly marginalized, not just in in the US or the Western world, but globally, and continues to be marginalized. And by linking them only to sex, and linking the possibility of their trafficking only to sex, I think we further marginalize this community when you look at sort of wider reports from the Trafficking in Person's Office, the TIP report, and media sources, when you do hear about sex trafficking of queer peoples, it's also overwhelmingly of men, men trafficking other men, which I think furthers that narrative that homosexuality is this dangerous sort of deviance. Uh, And I would like to make it clear, we're not talking about anything involving children, we're talking all about adult sex trafficking in this particular podcast. We're going to tackle the child portion in another podcast that's coming up. So I don't want you guys to think we just left it out, but we're going to be talking about that later. But yeah, that it's adult men victimizing other adult men. And then there's a weird side portion of that because sexual violence against males is generally considered taboo in most societies or it's just not something you talk about because of the way masculinity is performed you know, a man doesn't report sexual assault. We know that overwhelmingly, uh, particularly if the perpetrator against them is female. So in a lot of cases, male victims are constrained by societal barriers from reporting what's happened to them from reporting their victimization. And they're also barred a lot from seeking services. So the space in the shelter is available to you, the funding available to you, Uh, the therapy available for you and sometimes even the legal recourse available to you because the law the language of the law is categorized in such a way that it's hard for a man to push for the fact that he was sexually assaulted and that this somehow damages you as a person or your identity if you're a man who is also a victim just complicates things even more and this I think increases then the likelihood of when we do get things reported, they're reported in sort of these sensationalistic, be afraid sort of ways that to to be a member of the queer community, particularly if you're male, is a dangerous position to hold. So the other issue is for LGBTQ people moving in or or being more maybe susceptible, say, to sex trafficking in the United States, is this vulnerability portion, right? So Seth and I have talked a lot about while trafficking does affect all demographics, traffickers frequently target individuals who lack strong support networks, are facing financial strains, have experienced violence in the past, or who are marginalized by society. Without adequate community support, youth who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning may be at particular risk for sex trafficking. Now, that last portion comes from the Polaris Project, and of course, I will link it so all of you can read it in more detail. But I would argue that vulnerability target individuals who lack strong support networks, who have financial strains, who have experienced violence in the past, who are marginalized by society. I think that puts you at equal risk not for sex trafficking, but just trafficking in general. I think it also opens you up for labor trafficking. I think it opens you up to both forms of trafficking. I just think that sex trafficking, as we've talked about, is something that is a little bit easier to see. It's a little bit easier to quote-unquote treat via the raid and rescue model or via the prosecution of buyers and sellers, whereas labor trafficking is a little bit more insidious. Now, what is it about being in the queer community that makes you vulnerable? One, homophobia and discrimination. So members of the queer community are often victimized by their peers, uh, their family members, or their communities. Any sort of glance at suicide rates of people in the queer community being so much higher than in the heterosexual or cisgender community, and you'll see that reflected. And as a result, this group is more likely to have low self-esteem, higher stress, higher anxiety, depression, and that all sets a groundwork, right? You become vulnerable to human trafficking not because of one particular thing, but because of a series of things. Your socioeconomic position, the ties you have to your community, the support networks you have at home, your level of education, your skill with languages, your ability to have sort of social awareness and to navigate things well. And it's sort of like Death by a Thousand Cuts, that eventually you get so vulnerable to things that people will make incredibly risky decisions because it seems like the best survival tactic for them, which puts them at risk of being trapped. Now, what adds on to this, I think very firmly, is that when you add things in like the law dimension and sort of the policing of sexuality, in the US there are 29 states that you could be fired based on being a member of the queer community. That's not to say that if you're a member of a particular, if you're working for a particular faith-based organization, they have the right to hire you. That's just at a state level that they have the right to hire or fire you based on your sexuality. And that nearly 80 countries around the world have laws that criminalize people on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity. So when you add in that legal definition where it's not just that I'm afraid, say, of the local police or that I feel that the local government isn't respectful of my needs or my wants, or that the local community as a whole is open to hearing about my struggles and my concerns. It's that to be outed as a member of the queer community, to live my life completely out with every aspect of my identity acknowledged equally is actually to do something that could land me in jail, could result in me being fined, could result in me being hurt, could result in me being killed. So when you add in that, that fear Of reprisal from the community, not just that you won't be accepted, but that you'll actively be hurt. That super increases your vulnerability, particularly in cases of trafficking, where it's it's not uncommon for people to be trafficked because they're trying to leave their community. So we see in Denver a lot of people, a lot of young people, uh, and by young people I mean over the age of 18, but not quite at full age of majority in the U.S., you know, drinking age or whatever, who have gotten themselves into very dangerous trafficking situations or made themselves very vulnerable and sort of open to traffickers because they desperately needed to get out of whatever city or town they were living in and felt that Denver would be more open and sort of a safer place for them to live their identity. And because they're trying to move across wide swaths of things, they require money they require support, they need places to stay, and they don't have that necessarily that family or that community unit to turn back to. And as we articulated, I think at the beginning of this, for a lot of people, the idea of church or the idea of their faith is a major part of their community. You know, I know when bad things happen, (laughs) it's kind of a joke in my household, but it's the truth of like, gotta call a priest. (laughs) Like bad things are happening, we need assistance, you go straight. So you're sort of head local guy. But if you feel that you can't reach out to that faith community because, in fact, they would either ostracize you or harm you, then who do you turn back to? You just have yourself. And that, I think, is something that really increases the likelihood of being trafficked. And then we need to add in the sort of weird case of why do we have more... LGBTQ people or sort of the queer community as a whole why are they overwhelmingly represented in the sex work? You know, pick the mainstream television show whether it's Law & Order, SVU or Sex and the City or whatever and you know that they've made reference to this idea of the transsexual prostitute or the gay prostitute, the rent boy or, you know, the the actually it's overwhelmingly aimed towards men. I don't think I've ever necessarily seen a depiction of a lesbian sex worker. But what you see overwhelmingly is sort of this representation of the queer community and sex work. And the reason for that is that when you look at a listing of things that make you more likely to live in poverty, to face discrimination from employment, as I've mentioned, and to need to fund yourself entirely on your own. So instead of being able to draw from sort of a community that has fiscal capital, you're entirely on your own and independent. Why why wouldn't you engage in sex work? Because sex work is profitable. (laughs) It's something you can do independently. And in some ways it's a way to have agency over this, this body that you may feel has sort of in some ways betrayed you or made your life more difficult. So you do see a lot of members of the queer community, certainly not all, but large portions who are already vulnerable entering into sex work consensually. But once you're engaged in sex work, that then opens you up to even more vulnerabilities to be trafficked. You can enter sex work consensually and then be trafficked. And that's not uncommon to happen. What you then also have is this sort of tendency on the behalf of law enforcement to overwhelmingly arrest and detain members of the queer community for prostitution-related offenses. Uh, Studies have found that that queer people are overrepresented in detention for sex work-related offenses and or crimes, and that this community, the queer community, reports higher levels of police misconduct against them as when they are picked up for those crimes, um, those sex work-related crimes, because often, They're facing discrimination from police and from police who view them as somehow being deviant or other for not only participating in sex work, but for their identity. So you see things like people who identify as female being placed in male jails and male detentions and vice versa. And so this is a really dangerous position to be in because if I'm a sex worker and I am trafficked, but I've already had hundreds of negative run-ins with law enforcement, and I have no community to go to, and I've been treated by people in power like crap, where do I turn to? How do I get assistance? I think you and I spoke in our last podcast of this idea of sort of the psychological coercion part of trafficking, of why is it that people just don't call 911 or just don't go to police? Well, this is why.
0: What do you think, Seth? Well, among the complications, are how prostitution is viewed in society and that with the job of a police officer, you're looking for people who are breaking the law. And also the lack of understanding between queer community and the more mainstream community and for all the reasons that there is a disconnect. But the job of a police officer is already not the easiest job in the world. Oh, and, yeah. and the systems may not uh, be accommodating enough to all people in all circumstances, which doesn't help if you're one of the vulnerable people put in the wrong cell.
1: Yeah, and I think there's sort of this conception. I feel very badly for law enforcement. Again, I shall power level and reveal myself. Uh, I come from a family full of law enforcement officers, both past and present. And I feel immense. I'm very, I understand what the majority of police officers are trying to do, which is you're trying to help a community via the only avenue you have, which is arrests. And you are upholding the letter of the law that you've sworn to, to hold. You are not a lawmaker, you are someone who's carrying the laws out. It's policymakers who are setting what it is you have to do. And in some cases, people are getting access to services they desperately need only when they are incarcerated. <laughs> Seth, you and I have talked about this before. When there's no victim services available, sometimes the best thing available is to send someone because that's all you have. And I find that to be very troubling, but I understand the motivations behind it.
0: Are there any suggested approaches to improving the situation?
1: Yes. I am actually really excited about that because again, this idea of gender identity and this idea of sexuality is really new in terms of people talking about it openly and policymakers being concerned for it, right? Mm-hmm. So even though queer community members might not be aware of anti-traffic services because they're unaware of services in their area or because that community lacks resources or because they feel like they can't necessarily connect to a non-queer community for services, there are a lot of solutions that are now being offered that i find to be quite good and if i sound like this is kind of novel it's because of stuff that i've mentioned normally services are not great <laughs> that that people are putting forth so again i'll be citing from Polaris project here and they listed, they've listed a number of things that they consider to be helpful for ending the sex trafficking of LGBTQ individuals, what, what we've identified as queer youth. But I think that this goes beyond sex trafficking. I think this goes into human trafficking as a whole, labor trafficking. So first, ending youth queer homelessness. So queer youth are much more likely to be homeless compared to their cisgender peers. So trying to sort of bridge those gaps between communities, between parents and children, between service providers for homeless youth who have particular rules about who can stay there or not based on their gender identity, trying to build up trust and rapport between those all of those entities so that this queer community is not out on the streets in such huge numbers, right? The second position that I think is quite good is sort of this idea of educating service providers. And it can be service providers of people in human trafficking and sort of service providers, general human services. So people who are working in ERs, people who are police, people who are social workers. Having them know, one, not only how to identify human trafficking, but two, what it actually is to be queer, what queerness is, what it isn't, how to offer flexibility for, for queer peoples and how to protect them and protect them from human trafficking. And that includes revamping intake processes, um, revisiting confidentiality processes, adapting services to be more inclusive. All of those things I think would be super helpful in terms of changing things boots on the ground wise. In terms of changing policy i think pushing for what in what in queer theory and other academic theories is sometimes called intersectional analysis or intersectionality which is when a multiply minoritized group so somebody who's marginalized by their sex their gender their sexuality their race their class their national identity their religious identity any number of things are marginalized or vulnerable for a number of portions about their identity rather than the whole. So that is looking at a person who comes in at an intake, say at a jail, right? They've been picked up for a prostitution related offense, looking at them and having a conversation with them, both of how they identify and then how the world identifies them. So are they marginalized or vulnerable because of their race? are they marginalized or vulnerable because of their sex, their gender, their sexuality, their socioeconomic class, uh, their status, so are they a citizen or not, the language that they speak, the level of education that they have, the religious identity that they have, all of these things. So looking at the full part of a person and then determining what services are best for them rather than just checking a box and saying, okay, you're queer, this is what you get. In particular, we see this happening a lot anecdotally where people come in for therapy after trafficking. So after they've been removed for a human trafficking situation and they come in, say that they've been trafficked as a construction worker and they come in for therapy after, after they've been freed and they're dealing with sort of all of the troubles of survivorship, all of the mental trauma, the physical trauma, the emotional trauma, and they're assigned to a queer support group. And for them, that's not helpful because the issue at hand isn't their gender or their sexuality. The issue is that for three years their labor was used without them being adequately compensated or them having freedom of movement. But they're identified first as well, you are your gender or you are your sexuality, so you're gonna be placed in that group first. So while human trafficking justice has so largely focused on these three centers, the three Ps so prevention, protection, prosecution, we've left out prevention in a lot of ways because there are a lot of structural factors like your class, your gender, sexuality, and gender inequalities and things. Those are more difficult to target and those make people vulnerable in different ways. And so people who are affected by these multiple factors aren't necessarily served with the frameworks that we have, so we need to sort of modify things a little bit. But sort of my my ending, if I would, if I was to give one final commentary on ways to improve this, it would just be for people who are aware of human trafficking, people who are attempting to solve human trafficking, all of these things, just to be aware that ultimately, at the end of the day, people aren't trafficked because of their sexuality, or their gender, people are trafficked because someone decided to be a trafficker. It's just the level of vulnerability that they have that open them up to danger.
0: And with that, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this very complicated episode on a topic that can be controversial. Mm-hmm. And if you have any feedback, especially on the relationship to human trafficking, let us know. Going to our website, speakerfortheliving.com. Any other final words?
1: Uh, Just if you see something, say something. As always, we will have the National Human Trafficking Hotline down below. Give them a call if you're concerned.
0: And that number is now on our website in the footer. If you have any concerns or are yourself in a position where you're wondering if you're in a state of trafficking. With that, we will talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.